Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. In 1993, car dealer Harry Fuller was with his wife Nicola at their home in East Sussex in England when Harry was fatally shot from behind. The bullet passed through his heart. Nicola called the emergency services, and if you're thinking this is going to be a story about mariticide, with Nicola being the beneficiary in Harry's will, you'd be wrong. Nicola had been shot several times as well, one bullet damaging her jaw. She was able to call the emergency services, but because of the damage to her jaw, she was unable to speak, and the operator assumed it was children playing and didn't take the call seriously. That is until a gunshot was heard over the line. The police would find 35-year-old insurance broker Stephen Young, a gun enthusiast who had mounting debts and was accused of killing the couple with the intention of stealing money. In 1994, Young was tried, and according to The Independent, there were cheers from the public gallery at Hove Crown Court as the conviction was read out while Young sat in the dock shaking his head. And it certainly didn't look good for Young. Fuller frequently handled large amounts of cash, and it was alleged he was in possession of around £13,000 at the time of the murder, a sum that was never recovered. Meanwhile, the accused deposited £6,000 into his bank account the day after the murders. On the day before the murders, Young had made a phone call to Fuller and arrangements were made for the two to meet on the day of the murder. His voice was identified in a recording Fuller had made of the call, although this wasn't common practice for him and nobody to this day knows why he decided to begin recording his phone calls. Young's car was also seen entering the area around the time of the murders and leaving again, and this activity was caught on CCTV footage. All this evidence prompted Young to admit he had been there on the day, but according to him, he arrived after the shooting, saw the aftermath, and fled in terror. He also claimed to have seen a face at one of the windows and received a threatening phone call warning him of repercussions if he were to contact the police. But the most compelling piece of evidence, for the jurors at least, was eyewitness testimony that Stephen Young had shot the Fullers that day. From one of the deceased, none other than Harry Fuller himself. Yes, you heard that correctly. When four of the twelve jurors, who were sequestered at a local hotel, sat up drinking the night before the verdict, they felt uncertain of Young's guilt, despite how compelling the evidence appeared. I mean, how could you live with yourself if you convicted someone of murder and you had any lingering doubts? And so the four drunken jurors hit upon a foolproof idea that would give them direction and absolute clarity and a Ouija board was hastily made from a sheet of paper and a biro, and a wine glass was used as the planchette. That's the thingy that slides around on the board and lands on the letters, in case you didn't know. And so, directed by the spirit of Harry Fuller, the board advised them to find Young guilty, and the following day at court, that's precisely what they did. Now, as it should happen, I have an interest in the paranormal, and the night before I recorded this episode, I attended a gathering with an evidential medium. 
I have a fairly open mind, but in this particular case, she channeled a long-haired man on a Harley Davidson who wished to speak to me. And sitting there as I was, resplendent in a leather jacket, full-face beard, ponytail and an Iron Maiden t-shirt, anyone might assume that I ride a bike myself. Problem is, I don't. I have very little interest in motorbikes, and everyone I know who rides is still alive. Was she a cold reader? Possibly. My point is that it's hardly a foolproof way of accessing information, and we certainly shouldn't be convicting people of crimes on the say-so of someone in the spirit realm. But these guys did. Over breakfast the day of the verdict, they told the other jurors of their conclusive new evidence, and later that day, Stephen Young was convicted of murder. However, loose lips sink ships, and somebody blabbed. A few weeks later, newspaper headlines screamed that the outcome of the trial had been determined by a bunch of drunks playing with a homemade Ouija board, and Stephen Young, as you might expect, was granted a retrial. It didn't help him, though. A fresh jury also found him guilty, and he received two life sentences, this time without any input from the other side. It's safe to say that we're all aware of the treatment of many ethnic and cultural groups under the Nazi regime in German-occupied territories during World War II, The Nazis, as we know, focused primarily on the Jewish community and the atrocities committed are innumerable. One group identity committing such acts against another group identity is something that is repeated throughout history and the psychology underpinning it is surprisingly simple. In evolutionary terms, it makes sense that we don't see all living creatures as equal and we put ourselves at the top of the food chain both literally and figuratively. Along these lines, we can treat other groups of humans, such as a neighbouring tribe competing for scarce resources, as below us in the hierarchy, and it's surprisingly easy to convince one cultural, ethnic or religious group of their superiority over another, quite literally seeing them as subhuman. But there's always those independent thinkers that are an exception to the group, In the case of Europe's Jews under Nazi occupation, you are likely familiar with the name Oskar Schindler from the book Schindler's Ark by Thomas Keneally, which was eventually made into the 1993 Steven Spielberg movie Schindler's List. Thanks to the retelling of his story, Oskar Schindler is still a household name. But of all the people in positions of power who refuse to dehumanise others, one name is surprisingly largely unknown. When a group of SS soldiers decided to publicly humiliate a group of Jewish women by making them get on their hands and knees and scrub a street, they were approached by an impeccably dressed man sporting a moustache and, as was fashionable at the time, a lighted cigarette in an expensive cigarette holder. But on his approach, the man stopped short, got down on all fours and began scrubbing with the women. Rather than being reprimanded, you may be surprised to learn that the dapper gentleman's actions resulted in the group of women being dismissed from their toil, the embarrassed and slightly nervous SS officers deciding to move on to other tasks. None of them, it seemed, wanted to have to explain why this man had been scrubbing the street 
with a group of people that, in their opinion, were nothing better than vermin. In particular, they didn't want word getting back to the Nazi hierarchy. You see, they knew who this man was. His name was Albert Goering, younger brother of one of the most powerful figures in the Nazi party, commander of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering. Though the two brothers retained their familial love for one another, ideologically they couldn't have been further apart. Albert, confident in his older brother's protection, openly opposed Nazi policy, flouting the law and using the Goering family name to manipulate the system, securing innumerable visas for Jews, in some cases by forging his brother's signature. Much like the aforementioned Oskar Schindler, Albert Goering committed small acts of sabotage while export director at a Skoda works factory. He would drag out the fulfilment of contracts, he would mysteriously lose important documents, and even instruct his workers to actively damage or disable their own products before shipping. Albert would repeatedly call for more labourers to be sent from concentration camps. If anybody ever checked to see exactly how many staff his factory required, they kept it to themselves, because Albert, as it turns out, was simply stopping the trucks along the way and releasing them. In one instance, he was able to secure the release of a group of Czech resistance fighters that were captured by the Gestapo. It's not known exactly how that conversation went, but needless to say, it wouldn't have been an easy sales pitch. At the end of the war, Albert avoided prosecution at Nuremberg thanks to these heroic feats, but sadly, the Goering family name cast a long shadow and Albert would be forced to flee to Argentina for his own safety ultimately becoming an alcoholic and passing away in 1966, with his extraordinary actions only recently entering public consciousness. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya.